in my last book, I don't know if you know it, it was called The World Without Us, and it became quite a phenomenon. It was, the reason that I wrote that book was really because I wanted a world with us, that in the book I theoretically wiped us off the map, and people see how quickly nature can recover if it's relieved of all of our daily pressures that we're constantly heaping on it. And, you know, it, it flourishes in amazing ways. It refills empty niches, and it you know, restores a healthy planet in less time than even I would have realized before I researched it. The um, idea, though, was I was hoping that people would see that and say, wow, that's really beautiful. Is there some way that we can remain part of this picture? But, of course, we'd have to be in some kind of... You know, harmonious balance with it, not in the mortal combat that we seem to be locked in with the rest of nature. But then I ran into a rather disturbing fact. Um, you see these numbers about population, and they're so big it's very hard to comprehend them. But I did some long division, and I found out that every four and a half days we're adding a million people to the planet, which was clearly not sustainable. And I left that question hanging at the end of the world without us. Is there something that we should do about it? Should population be on the table as we're trying to solve the environmental crisis we're, crises we're in so we can remain on this planet? And so many of my readers were interested in it. Uh, I heard from them constantly and on book tours and emails. And finally, I decided that population is this very loaded question, uh, you know, it hits us emotionally, it hits us you know, sometimes religiously. Uh, that I decided that as a journalist, I should try to look at it as objectively as possible and try to figure out, do we know what the uh, safe number of human beings on this planet would be? And if so, is there anything that we can realistically do about it that would be acceptable to most people? So that's how it happened. Forgive me, I haven't had a chance to finish the book. I am started on it. Is there a reasonable number that, that should be a goal or an expectation? Well, it seems like it's probably fewer than what we are right now because we're already bursting this planet at, at its seams. And, and the biggest concern is that we are all demanding so much energy. And the only way that we really know reliably to produce that energy to run all of our civilization and all of its industries and vehicles and everything else is through concentrated forms of carbon found in fossil fuels. So, you know, we're overheating the atmosphere and then that's been absorbed by the seas and they heat up and they expand and they rise and, you know, you know this drill. It's, 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 it's really a concern. The last time there was this much carbon in the atmosphere, the seas were 60 feet higher. So, um, there's a few ways of getting at an optimum number, uh, and I, you know, I put them out there in this book. Um, you know, some scientists have pointed out that uh, our numbers, you know, our, our numbers flared three times in the last 200 years. One was when we started eradicating diseases and developing vaccinations, and none of us has any objection to medical technology, of course. Uh, you know, the lifespan used to be 40, and you know, I'm over 40, so I'm glad that we have it. Um, but food production, and the one that I was just aiming at here, was uh, we invented a way to artificially pull nitrogen out of the atmosphere and chemically apply it to the soils. Without artificial nitrogen fertilizer, 40% of us would not be here. I mean, it literally changed the amount of plant life that this planet could produce. 
uh, which caused a population spurt. And unfortunately, and it has a lot of downsides. It's made out of fossil fuels. It degrades into nitrous oxide, which is a greenhouse gas, and it fouls our rivers and leaves huge dead zones in our seas and, and sterilizes soils. So if we gradually phased out a fossil fuel, a fossil fuel-based food, <laughs> we could uh, bring our population down over a couple of generations you know, or a few decades towards a much more sustainable number. Others have calculated the amount of energy per human being that would allow all of us to have a nominally acceptable lifestyle, you know, maybe something in the, um, that would resemble a European lifestyle, which is far less energy intensive than American, but uh, far more appealing than what Africans and South Asians have right now. And if you divide all that energy up by the number of people, assuming that we're not coming up with any big replacement for uh, carbon-based um, energy, uh, the numbers start going down into the, you know, one and a half to three billion range. And several others have calculated how much food stuff we can grow without eliminating too much of the ecosystem. Forty percent of the planet right now is devoted to uh, either growing or grazing food for ourselves, which is that just doesn't leave enough room for the rest of nature that provides some essential services to the human race. We, we can't just keep obliterating it. I wonder, is this conversation one that can be had without talking about climate change and, and the use of fossil fuels? Or do does overpopulation and climate change go hand in hand? Well, um, in, a, in an ecosystem, anything that you change is going to affect all kinds of systems. So what changed is that the human race used to have a fairly steady uh, population. Uh, you know, we were barely growing until around 1815, uh, or I'm sorry, about 1798 when smallpox vaccine was invented. Uh, you know, a woman might have seven or eight kids, but live on the average, a little over two of them would survive. Um, if you think about what has happened when suddenly our population exploded, we reached a billion in 1815, and then it started climbing, and then with that food stuff that I talked to you about, uh, we doubled in the 20th century and then doubled again. It changes a lot of things. Uh, besides the climate, again, we are pushing farther and farther into the into our forests. We've torn down many of them. That in itself changes the climate. That's not just the use of you know fossil fuel energy. Um, we all of our cities in the world were built either near good water sources or near good soils. And as the cities expand and sprawl across the landscape, they cover those soils and they drain those waters. And we're having severe water shortages in the world that are going, you know, this book goes to 21 different countries. And it's kind of a theme that keeps cropping up over and over again, that uh, they're running out of running out of water. There was a belief back in the 70s that the Green Revolution, that 
develop these new crossbred plants that could produce much more grain per stock, we're going to solve hunger and we could keep expanding, even though the founder of the Green Revolution in his Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech said, absolutely not. We have to pair, you know, enhance food growth with uh, population control if we're going to survive. But uh, I went to India and Pakistan for this book, which are the two places where the Green Revolution was first tried. And today, India is going to surpass Pakistan, or, excuse me, India is going to surpass China as the most populous country on earth within a decade, and Pakistan is just enormous. It's got nearly 190 million people in a country the size of Texas, which only has 26 million, and by the middle of the century, it's going to have more, way more people in the United States right now, and it's, and it's still going to be the size of Texas. In both of those countries, to water those green revolution crops, uh, they have to drill deeper and deeper and deeper because they're using up the water table. Uh, in India, I spent a day interviewing widows of farmers who've committed suicide because they couldn't afford to keep drilling deeper, and the numbers are just astonishing. The Indian government corroborates the farm union, which says 270,000 Green Revolution Indian farmers have committed suicide since 1995. So, you know, you take away the problem of fossil fuels. We will still have sprawl, and we will still need to produce so much food for the human race that we're, we're starting to overwhelm everything else on the planet. What about diplomatic or, or policy-type changes. Can or, or should countries have some sort of population control in place? Um, I don't like the idea of governments controlling anything because it's simply not acceptable to most people. You know, everybody thinks of the Chinese one-child policy. Nobody likes it, including the Chinese. So in this book, I went to several places that they have instituted very successful family planning programs without being coercive. They're voluntary programs. They simply make it very, very attractive to people to have fewer children. And there are simply two ways that they do that. They um, make contraception available. And I've got an example of Iran in this book, which had a huge population explosion right after the Islamic Revolution because Saddam Hussein attacked them trying to steal this oil-rich province on their border. So they tried to build a 20 million man army by getting every Iranian woman who could get pregnant uh, to contribute, you know, patriotically to the company, to the country, with with more sons. Well, after that, they realized that they were never going to be able to employ all of these kids when they got older. So they started a voluntary program. The only thing that was compulsory was uh, premarital classes for everybody, either in a health center or in a mosque, in which they talk about, uh, among other things, how much does it cost to raise and feed and clothe and educate, educate children? And that combined with a fatwa saying there's nothing in the Quran against using any kind of birth control, including an operation, like a vasectomy or a tubal ligation, if you, wisdom dictates that you have enough children that you can responsibly care for, uh, making then contraception available to everybody, and, and this is really critical because this can be universally applied, encouraging women to stay in school. A woman who stays in school tends to defer her childbearing until her education is done, and then afterwards she's got something interesting and useful uh, and economically helpful to her family. 
she certainly, you know, often, most times wants to be a mother, but you can't exercise a profession uh, if you've got seven kids clinging to your apron strings. So today, the majority of women on the average in the world who have completed high school have two children or fewer. So if we made contraception, I mean, this is the one thing governments can do. The United States government is very good about this. We are the biggest provider of contraception worldwide, though we could be doing more, and it's very, very cheap. For less money than the United States was spending in Iraq and Afghanistan per month, annually we could put that amount of money, slightly over $8 billion, into making contraception available for everybody. And you combine that with women's education, and women will figure out uh, what to do, and uh, the population problem will go away. And this happens even when religions get involved. You know, Italy isn't, we should say, a Catholic country. It's got the Vatican in it. I go to the Vatican in this book. But Italian women are some of the most educated in the world, and they've got a fertility rate that's way below two children per woman because they want to do something with their with their careers. So you don't have to have a coercive government telling us what to do. So are you hopeful that, that this book, that Countdown, becomes... Uh, a jumping-off point for people to begin talking, or are you hoping for people to take action from something like this? Well, I'd say yes to both. Um, I wrote this sub- I wrote this because the subject really needed to be studied in detail. There's a lot of arguments that constantly come up against uh, you know, against um, population management. Um, you know, people say, well, what's going to happen? I, I heard this. I was on a radio interview yesterday debating a guy, and he was saying, well, you know, we need young innovators uh, to come up with the ideas to solve society's problems. And and uh, you, you constantly hear, you know, that next baby that doesn't get born could have been the next Mozart. Uh, you know, as if we needed 7 billion people to produce Mozart, there were fewer than half a billion people on the planet when Mozart was born. Uh, we have had a critical mass of innovative, creative thinkers for a long time uh, before our population started to, to totally explode. And I want people to think about these things, think about how much more pleasant the world would be if we had fewer people in it. In a, I remember when Barack Obama was elected, and a lot of people who supported him believed he was going to be the new Franklin D. Roosevelt and solve all these social problems that we were having and, and helping back employment. And then they were very frustrated when that didn't happen so quickly or so easily. And I never see a news analysis that, that stops to consider that Obama has three times the number of people to deal with in the United States as, as Roosevelt did. I mean, that's huge. Uh, you know, everybody that I know can remember some place that they used to go to not far from home where they could get away. They could go out and have a picnic or, you know, sit under a tree or they could saw firewood. You know, they could go watch birds. They could kill birds if that's what they like to do, hunt. And now those places are buried under condominia or strip malls or whatever. And, and, and everybody remembers when there was less air pollution because of what we do. And now air pollution has been... Uh, has been designated as carcinogenic, uh, things would be a lot more manageable and a lot healthier on this planet if there were fewer of us. I really want my species to survive, and I'm hoping that people do take action. I mean, the first action is making sure that we continue to make uh, 
contraception available worldwide, and that's something that uh, you know we can ask our congressmen to do. Um, you know, in, in the last presidential election, the guys who didn't win had vowed that they were going to cut off a lot of that largesse. It's a really bad idea because uh, the supply lines that get contraception out to the rest of the world are pretty thin in places. There's only a few governments and foundations that donate to it, and if they, you know, if those lines were cut, just a half a child more per woman, and we would be headed not towards 11 billion at the end of the century as our growth rate is taking us, but to 16 billion. But a half child fewer we'd be going back down to $6 billion, which would be in the right direction towards a sustainable balance with the rest of the planet. That's all the questions that I had. Anything else that you'd like to add? You know, just emphasize that this doesn't, this is one thing that we can do to help both the environment and ourselves that doesn't involve any great new technological leaps. We don't know how to produce massive amounts of emissions-free energy. And even if we did, we'd still have all these other problems about sprawl and food production. Uh, but the technology for contraception already exists. In the book, I also show these new male contraceptives that are coming online that are efficacious and simpler. And uh, we can start doing this right now. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Well, thanks. I hope this was helpful.